So if you're uh, sitting in a pew and you happen to see one of these little green and white ink pens, why don't you pull one of those out? If the other two services haven't taken them all already. So I'm, I'm in a restaurant this week and a uh, server brings me my bill and, and sets my bill down on the table and puts an ink pen down with it and I look at the ink pen and I smile and said, I know that pen, I recognize that. And she said, her eyes got real big, and she said, oh, um, I stole that. (laughs) I said, really? And she said, well, I'm new to this area, and um, my husband and I have been looking for a church, and so we've been um, looking around the Lansing area, and um, we're we're going to this um, new church that we've heard about, and they've got three services now. It's called New Hope. Are you familiar with it? (laughs) I said, yeah, I've heard of it. And... uh, uh, she said, I'm, I'm going to be there this weekend. Uh, will I see you there? And uh, I said, probably, yeah. <laughs> I didn't tell her who I was, so it was a big surprise. Um, we're in the uh, book of John. If you're new to New Hope, you may not know that uh, we're working our, w- our way through the Gospel of John, uh, fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And this particular Gospel was written when John was like in his 90s. And he's looking back over the course of his life and when he was in his 20s and all this activity he had with Christ, specifically eyewitness accounts. And he wrote in John 1.18 that no man has ever seen God, but Jesus explained him. And so we understand that because Jesus explained God, he's painting a portrait for us. And this portrait that we see on the canvas, if the imaginary portrait here on the platform, each time that Jesus explains God, we see another brushstroke on the canvas. And so that's what we're looking for as we work our way through the study. Last week, if you were here, you're very familiar with the fact that Jesus was being accused by leaders in Israel that he committed blasphemy. And so he called forward four witnesses to prove that he was who he said he was. And the first one, because they authenticated John the Baptist as a prophet, a man from God, Jesus called forward John the Baptist as a witness for him. And then he called forward his miracles and said, my miracles alone speak to who I am. And then he called forward God the Father. Then he called forward the fourth witness, God's Word. And we looked at those pretty in depth last week, especially the issue of miracles. We really camped on that, and we see this morning one major miracle that took place. Matter of fact, Jesus was so emphatic that the miracles emphasized who he was that he constantly pointed to them even when he was in the middle of debate and dialogue, when he was in the midst of what we would call an argument, he pointed to the miracles. Look with me on the screen at John 10, 24. This is when he's in the midst of a discussion. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. The word works there is the word eron in Greek, and it means miracles, literally. The eron that Jesus was doing. So he's not ashamed to say, these things emphasize who I am. And so we're going to look at a major miracle this morning. One that really emphasizes. We're going to find ourselves, if if you have your Bibles, by the way, turn to uh, John chapter 6. We're going to find ourselves in verse 1. And where it places us immediately is in the northern part of Israel. I want you to see a map on the screen so you understand where we're starting from this morning. You understand that this is the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee has uh, on the far western shore a town called Capernaum. You see that in purple up there. 
And we're going to find ourselves moving across the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side, to the area called the Gerasene. And it's the area where the Gentiles lived, meaning non-Jews. You and I, if we're not Jewish, we're Gentiles. That's the word that the Bible uses to describe us. Those who are non-Jewish. So people who are non-Jewish lived on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And you're going to see in the story Jesus working His way across. Here's the setting. Jesus' popularity is skyrocketing. Over the course of the beginning of His work, people are coming to Him by the thousands. We read last week in Luke, literally people were climbing over the top of each other, stepping on each other to get to Jesus. And so we understand that there's thousands of people who want to be around Him. This situation that we're going to read about this morning is the most significant miracle recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only one that's recorded by all four of the writers of those books other than the crucifixion and the resurrection. Other than the crucifixion and resurrection, this is the only one you'll find in all four. So we're going to look in depth at this miracle. And let's start out in John chapter 1 and verse, uh, John chapter 6, I'm sorry, and verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Or, in parentheses, it says Tiberias. After these things, the Greek word there is metatata, and it literally is saying not necessarily immediately after the events. You would think because chapter 6 is written after chapter 5, and they are successive, you would think they happened in immediate sequence. That's not the case. There's actually months in between. The events that you learned about last week in chapter 5 actually happened several months before, probably in the fall or late fall, and the events you're going to learn about this morning actually happened in the spring. And so during the course of those months in between, Jesus continues to teach and do many miracles, especially what John wrote about in the very end of his book, so many that the world couldn't possibly contain the record of all the things that Jesus did. So we only get glimpses and pieces of it as we read through this. But in those months in between, his popularity begins to soar. And people are following him by the thousands. So it's not necessarily that it happened immediately when it says after these things, but it happened in succession. Apparently, there's a significant time gap between chapter 5 and chapter 6. But we're told in verse 1 that Jesus went away in a boat. How do I know that? Because of what it says in Mark chapter 6. Mark records the same thing, that when Jesus crossed the sea, it wasn't on foot. Look with me on the screen, Mark chapter 6 and verse 31. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves, meaning the disciples, he's speaking to the twelve, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Verse 32, they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Well, how did they do that now? Did, did they pull up a GPS and enter a secluded place and turn on the motor and motor across? Absolutely not. You like that, Libby? <laughs> There's no GPS. There's no motor. They had to row. So they get in a boat, they put up the sail, and they begin rowing, working their way. These guys are fishermen. They made their living on the sea. They're probably pretty big, muscular guys. And they're working their way all the way across the Sea of Galilee. It's also called the Sea of Tiberias we see in the text. And I'll show you why in just a minute. But where are they headed for? They're headed to Jesus' quiet place, a solitary place. As a matter of fact, here's the word that's used in Scripture, eremos. A lonesome or desolate, solitary wilderness. You have a place like that in your life? A place where you go to to be away from everybody else? Jesus is about to take them to his bat cave, if you will. The place to get away, where he can shut out the world. 
He's going because he's tired. And there's been so much going on over the months. He's not only physically exhausted, because we understand he's fully man, but yet fully God. But he's got a human body, and he's physically tired, and the disciples are tired. So there's this indicator here that says it's going also not only the Sea of Galilee, it's also called Tiberias. It's just interesting for you if you like archaeology, in, in that we understand now how these books were written and the time frame in which they were written by comments like that when it says in your Bible, or Tiberias. It was known as the Sea of Galilee at the time of Jesus. But John is in his 90s. He's really old. Looking back over time, and a new Caesar came into power. Caesar Tiberius. And so the lake, the sea, was renamed after Tiberius. So we understand. That's why it says that in Scripture. John's trying to help his readers understand. Hey, I'm, I'm talking about Tiberius, the Sea of Tiberius, which is also the Sea of Galilee. So they're going to cross all over to this desolate place, to the remote, to the other side, and Jesus has a specific reason for going there. For one, I told you it's the region of the Gentiles on the eastern shore, which means it's just out of the reach of Herod. King Herod, who controls Israel. Jesus is moving beyond the territory of Herod's grasp. And he's taking his guys there to be refreshed but also there's a specific reason. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 14, 13. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. See, if you read Matthew's version of the story, you understand that Jesus just discovered that John the Baptist, not John the disciple, but John the Baptist, has just been executed. Herod separated his body from his head. And Jesus is mourning. He's lost his not only friend, his cousin, biologically, they were related, and one of his witnesses, one of those who stood up for him. And his time was up. What he had been sent here to do was accomplished. So God allowed him to go through this time of testing. And John the Baptist was killed for the sake of the kingdom. So Jesus has been involved in exhausting work they need a break from the frantic pace. You understood when you read that text. They're so busy they didn't even have time to eat. And they need a time for rest, but also a chance for Jesus to debrief the disciples, to spend some time alone. So they work their way across the sea. They're moving out to the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And I'm sure at that point is when they finally let their guard down. <sighs> the wind fills the sails. You can hear the waves in the water. It's quiet until they get close to the eastern shore and they see on the horizon thousands of people. Not hundreds, thousands of people waiting on the shore for Jesus to arrive. And you're going to see why in just a minute because they're hoofing it over there. See, the spread of His fame is so great that it actually makes it all the way around the sea. And people here, not because of cell phones, but because people went to foot and they started running to get to the other side where Jesus is headed. Look with me at verse 2. A large crowd followed Him because they saw the signs which He was performing on those who were sick. Now I'll show you in just a little bit that most theologians say conservatively there's probably at least 15,000 people waiting for Him on the shore. 
I'll show you how you can understand that in just a few minutes. How'd they follow him? Well, we read in some of the Gospels that they followed him on boat, but also we see Mark 6.33. The people saw them going, meaning from Capernaum, when he left the western side, the people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. Now, you're going to the place where you hope it's going to be desolate. No one's going to be there. It's a solitary place. And when you arrive, you find thousands of people. And why are they there? It tells us right there, because they saw the signs. They're not motivated by faith in Jesus necessarily. They're not recognizing that he's the king of the world. They're motivated because they've got issues. He's fixing people. He's fixing broken people. And I don't fault them for that. You wouldn't either. If you had a physical issue in your life or you wanted healing of some type, you'd be in that crowd too. We'd want to be part of what's going on. So there's obviously thrill seekers here who want to see it happen, but there's people here with genuine needs. So let's move on to verse 3. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So they reach their destination. They arrive on the eastern shore. The crowd is just streaming into the beach. They're flocking in around Him, not only increasing in number, but they're already waiting there for Him. And despite the crowd, we see that Jesus walks right past them and goes up and sits on the mountain with the 12 guys. He wants the alone time. So He allows them to stay down on the beach for apparently a period of time. I'm sure some follow Him up there. But we get this detail. We see that Jesus is up there sitting down with the disciples. And then John tells us in verse 4, it's the Passover. Now, why did He want us to know that? Well, it helps us to establish a timeline. We obviously understand this is an eyewitness, somebody who's right there. And He tells us this is the Passover so that we understand this is a time of nationalistic celebration. So when you read about the Passover in the Bible, you should think 4th of July here in the United States. Think in terms of a nation that comes together to celebrate its independence. That's what Passover was for them. They were celebrating the fact that they had been freed from Egypt. Yes, it happened hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, but they still celebrate it on an annual basis. They come together. So that's why I'd say, think of like the 4th of July, an annual event. And he helps us understand there's a timeline here in which these events took place. Passover is always in the spring of the year which you'll see amplified in just a minute when he tells us it was really green grass at that time. So it's in the springtime of the year. Jesus is up on the mountainside. He finishes talking with his disciples and he begins paying attention to the crowd that's down below him. As a matter of fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us what he did when he recognized what was going on. Look with me on the screen. First of all, you see Mark 6.34. So after spending time with his disciples, it says he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He's looking over the huge crowd and he understands they need something to guide them. And so we move on. We see in Matthew 14, 14, what did he do? He began, he healed their sick. And then in Luke 9, 11, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So Jesus leaves the mountainside, comes down among the people, thousands there. He begins talking to them about God's kingdom. He's healing the sick. I'm sure they begin streaming into him at that point because just through a word, he cures paralysis. He makes people who were lame walk, blind see, deaf hear. So they're going to be coming to him in droves. 
So that helps us understand verse 5 when John writes this. Verse 5 says this, Therefore Jesus, lifting up His eyes, I'm going to stop right there. So He lifts up His eyes. He's on the mountainside. He looks out. He sees the people coming by sea. He sees the people coming by land. Jesus, therefore, lifting up His eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to Him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This He was saying to test Him, for He Himself knew what He was intending to do. So we see Jesus lift up His eyes, and here we see a brushstroke, a representation of the nature and character of God. And actually, I want you to see, and it's not in, your, it's not in the screen, you can write this into your notes today, there's three brushstrokes that take place here. Here's the first one. God sees the crowd. He lifts His eyes up, and He's very aware. So you could transfer this over to your own life. Is God aware of the circumstances going on in your life? Absolutely. Without any question. God sees you. And He's very aware. So naturally that would cause you to say, well, Jesus lifted up His eyes. He sees the crowd. He's not only aware of them. It's not just a visual recognition. Is He concerned? Absolutely He's concerned. God considers the needs of the people. So He says to Philip, where are we going to get enough food, Philip, to feed all these people? And he's engaging Philip in a conversation here because he's about to test him. Now remember, the setting is this. The day is declining. It's evening time. I don't know how much time took place leading up to this from their arrival to evening. But with evening time, sun's beginning to go down. Jesus recognizes these people need to have their needs, physical needs met. So he asks a classic rabbinical question. And by that, I mean the relationship between the rabbi and the disciple. What Scripture calls the Talmud. T-A-L-M-U-D-E or Talmudin. That would be an individual who's completely sold their life out to follow their rabbi. And I don't mean they show up for work at 8 in the morning and they check out 5 in the afternoon. This is a 24-hour-a-day commitment, lifetime commitment, to when they're following their rabbi, a Talmudin or a disciple has to respond to everything that their rabbi asked them to do. So when Jesus is asking this question of Philip, Philip, where are we going to get enough food to take care of all these people? This is a rabbinical question in which he's setting him up. Because here's the third brushstroke. God will test you. God will allow you to go through a time of testing. And I'm going to explain that for you just a minute. I want you to understand the word that Jesus uses. When John writes that Jesus was testing Philip, the word is parazzo. Look at the definition on the screen. To scrutinize, to discipline, to examine for the sake of proving an individual. So it's not testing for the sake of testing. It's not like taking a math exam just to see how much you know. This is testing for the purpose of discipling someone to grow them in their relationship. So we understand that this situation, what Jesus has just placed Philip by asking him this question as the rabbi talking to his Talmud is challenging him about his relationship, his relationship to the rabbi. He's wanting him to come up with a solution. So the disciples right away start coming up with one major solution. This is their solution to fix the problem. Send them all home. Get them out of here. Make them leave. Then we won't have to deal with them. Look with me up on the screen. Verse, Matthew 14, verse 15. 
It was evening. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. There's no time for travel. It's already taken them hours to get there. This has been a long journey for them. And Jesus knows that they're weak. They need something to strengthen them. And Sam's club is closed. So he's asking the question, where are we going to get enough food, Philip? Do you see how the rabbi is setting up the disciple? He's staging it for him. So Jesus says to them in response, you find this in the writings in Mark, that when they said, send him home, this is what Jesus says back to them. Mark 6.37, But he answered them, you give them something to eat. (laughs) What? Where are we going to get food? The disciples are convinced there's nothing they can do but pressure Jesus into sending them all home. And he's saying as the rabbi to the disciples, and there's a huge dynamic going on here, you feed the crowd. You are my followers. Come up with a solution. They can't imagine how it can be done. And this is a really challenging moment in the life of a Christ follower. When God allows you to be tested in the midst of a situation and you're looking for a solution and by human standards, you can't come up with a fix. So when he says, where are we to buy bread? We know that Jesus is not at a loss for the solution because John told us he already knew what he was going to do. That's what he wrote there in that passage. He himself knew what he was intending to do, but he was asking him to test him. Now, it's really tempting for me to surmise what the disciples are thinking at this point. I'm thinking they've done the rowing. They've done all the work to get over there. They found the thousands on the beach when there wasn't supposed to be anybody there. And now they've not only had to endure the crowd, they've had to share Jesus with the crowd. And now he's putting this weight on them? I'm thinking they're thinking, we didn't invite them here. We didn't ask them to show up. Why are we responsible? What's going on here? We see God educating His followers, causing them to recognize that they have the responsibility to come up with a plan of action. And that's one of the things I love about New Hope. The people who attend here that make up our church are proactive followers of Christ. I don't know if you knew that about your church, but there are many people who are constantly looking for ways to fix problems among people, to solve issues, to step in and say, how can I serve? I want to be used in the kingdom. That's what Jesus wants these guys to think like. How can we be proactive and come up with solutions to meet people's needs? So obviously, there's some kind of an intent behind the question. When Jesus sets this dilemma up for him, he wants them to articulate that there is in truth an impossibility to the situation short of God intervening. So when he's asking the question, what he's really trying to do is not discover what Philip's mindset is because he already knows he's omniscient. And he's really not asking Philip to formulate a plan. What he's really asking them to do is to recognize who it is that can solve this problem. See, it's really not about buying the bread. It's totally about the test. So this may be the Lord's purpose in having you here this morning to understand what's going on here in Philip's life. It may be the very reason that God caused you to get up and say, you know, I think I should go to church today. It may be that God was prompting your heart for this very reason for you to hear this. Because when we understand that in the midst of the testing that we go through, the things that God allows us to endure, the trials, there is always a purpose in the test. The parazo 
for the examination, for you to understand where you're at in relationship with God. So you understand, it had nothing to do with the bread. It really had nothing to do with the shortage of money. It had everything to do with what God's role was in this and who they would recognize would solve the problem. So if he's asking Philip to face this issue, but it's not for Jesus' benefit, what specifically is it for? Certainly not testing for the sake of testing, but for a reason. James writes about the reason for going through a test. Let me show you the reason on the screen. James 1-2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the, there's that word, perazzo, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter also wrote about this exact same issue. Look with me on the screen. 1 Peter 1.7 You have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a purpose to the testing that we go through. And apparently, it appears that Jesus is okay with allowing the disciples to agonize over the lack of a solution. He's setting them up so that they understand there is no solution to this. What can we possibly do? So he's understanding that you know there's, there's no human solution to this. Jesus is not asking for them to solve the problem. You get that? He's asking for them to turn their attention to the one who can take care of the problem. So look at Philip's response in relation to the question. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. Now Philip, if you've studied him at all in Scripture, you understand that he's got a mind like an accountant. He's very practical. His mind works like a cash register. Everything is right in order. He's a very practical person. And so he looks at the situation, and all he can do is produce statistics to show what cannot be done. It can't be fixed. It's pointless, Jesus, to even discuss this. There isn't enough money. Now, I want you to understand, Denary, what it represented here. We, we see in our text it says eight months' wages. Literally, 200 denarii was the phrase that they used. 200 denarii representing eight months' wages. Oh, what's a denarii or a denarius? Roman coin. Roman coinage was used. So if a man went out and worked in an orchard or worked in a vineyard or he was a carpenter perhaps, semi-skilled labor, at the end of the day, his employer would give him one Roman coin, a denarius. So what Philip is saying is 200 days of labor. I don't know what you earn in 200 days, but from Philip's perspective, a working man's wage in 200 days couldn't feed this crowd. That's how big this crowd is. Eight months of wages. None of the disciples have enough money. They're fishermen. Peter, do you have enough money? I have no silver and gold. Thomas, do you have any money? I doubt it. I don't have any. I don't possibly, a few of you got that. No, Philip's, his response is really helping us to understand this is an impossible situation. That's the, really the perspective he's giving us. So, He's already seen Jesus turn water into wine, hasn't he? He's already seen that miracle. 
He's already seen Jesus raise a paralyzed man, yet he can't get it in his head that he's got to turn this over to Jesus and put his focus on him. All he can think about is, I don't have enough cash. I can't buy my way out of this situation. So go with me to verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Andrew gets credit. At least he's trying to make some forward motion out of the situation. Now, we understand that what Jesus did is he sent the disciples out. If you read the account in Mark later today, Mark chapter 6, you'll see that Jesus told the disciples to go out among the thousands of people to find out how much food there was. And I think there's a specific reason for that. I think he wanted to demonstrate to them that there is no other resource here. So Andrew shows up with this little boy. And literally, when it says lad, it means a young boy because he's got a little boy snack. These five barley loaves. So look with me at Mark 6.38. You'll see Jesus' order to them. And He said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go, look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. So when it says loaf of bread, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking what you buy at Myers or Kroger or any grocery store. You get a big loaf of bread. That's not what this is talking about. If you go down to Blondie's restaurant here in Hazlitt and you order breakfast and you order up pancakes... We're talking a little round disc, a compressed piece of bread. That's what they called a loaf. And it's made of barley. I mean, that's the cheapest grain available. It was just a snack cracker. And his mom obviously sent him out with five of these little barley loaves and two sardines. It were small little fish. My grandpa used to feed me sardines when I was a kid. I was like, ugh. I look at them now and think, how in the world did I eat those things? They, they ate them like an hors d'oeuvre. They would put it between the loaves of barley and eat it like a relish. That's all this little boy had. So apparently what Andrew's doing is he's reporting the results of the search. He's gone out among the people. He found this little boy and brought him back. But he made this statement that he probably should have kept to himself. What are, what are these in the face of such a huge crowd? I mean, Jesus, I can hold it in one hand. This isn't going to help the situation. And he recognizes he should be turning it over to Jesus, so he does. But the enormity of the situation is a logistical problem. So that's why you get the response that he did. I want you to notice as you read this passage, not one single person comes to Jesus and says, you've got the solution. You can fix this. You're the king of the universe. You can solve this problem. No one does that. Jesus has the power to provide, but they all miss it. That's what He wants us to do when your job goes away, when perhaps you're in a relationship that collapses, perhaps some trauma comes into your life you totally didn't see coming. He wants us to take it and turn it to Him and say, all I've got are these five barley loaves and two stinking little sardines, and I can't fix this. But Jesus takes control of the situation. Watch what He does in verse 10. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. So understand, the disciples are a complete standstill. They don't know what to do. And Jesus takes control of the situation. Have you ever had guests show up, I don't know, two or three in the afternoon, 
And you think maybe they're going to be there for an hour. And three turns into four. And four turns into five. And about 5.30, somebody nudges somebody else in the family and says, I think they're staying for supper. And so somebody makes an emergency run to Little Caesars to pick up pizzas. There's no Little Caesars here. There's no way to fix this. There's no supermarkets. There's no fast food restaurants. So when Jesus says, have the people sit down, what's he doing? First of all, it's necessary to stabilize the crowd because there's such a mass of people. When they realize that Jesus is about to do what he's doing, making food, they're going to rush. So he takes control and says they're sitting down in groups of 50 and 100s. We're going to bring some order to this event. Make them sit down. Actually, the word that's used is recline. And you only use the word recline when you're ready to eat. So they go into a reclining position. They're sitting down. And we get this eyewitness account telling us that there's 5,000 men there. But also, Matthew gives us further insight. Matthew 14, he tells us there were women and children. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 14, 21. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. So it doesn't take a lot of imagination to say, if there were married men there who had their wives and they had children, you can get to 15,000 real quickly. You can get to 20,000 without much of an imagination if parents had two children. You've got a lot of eaters there. And I'm sure there's teenagers who eat a lot more. Now, so imagine this with me. The Breslin Center seats around 14,000 roughly, somewhere in that range. You've got Breslin plus, 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 plus. And they all want to eat. And Jesus has put this responsibility on these guys. And eyewitness detail also tells us there's much grass in the place, which emphasizes the fact that it's the Passover. It's springtime. The grass hasn't burned off yet. So this eyewitness account puts us in this situation where we find the crowd in a very curious predicament. They're reclining. The disciples have already moved among them and asked for their food, and all they come up with are the five barley loaves. And they're reclining knowing there's no food. What a troubling experience for the disciples. They've asked them to recline, yet they know that all they brought to Jesus were the five barley loaves. We're asking these people to sit down. There's thousands of them here, and we don't have any food. They know there's nothing to serve. Can you imagine seeing the heads bob? They're in the groups of 50 and 100, and they begin realizing what Jesus is doing. They're seeing God produce just like manna from heaven in the Old Testament, God making food before them. Look with me at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, how many of you here eat at Olive Garden, but they have these wonderful breadsticks that they bring out? And they're unlimited breadsticks. And they keep bringing them and bringing them. No one ever challenges you and says, you've had too many. Well, maybe your wife will do that because mine has done that. You never have any waiter walk up to you and say, you've had too many. Stop eating them. That's what's going on here. They can eat as much as they want to the point where they're stuffed. And the word that's used here when it's used distributed, didomai, means literally 
It's going on. It's a continuing action. Jesus keeps reaching into the basket, breaking it, and filling it. This must have gone on for hours. He keeps refilling the baskets and sending them back out. Those five little barley loaves are multiplied, and the fish are multiplied. And it's not done, apparently, with much fanfare. He just reaches in, breaks it, and keeps refilling the baskets. Reaching in, breaking it, refilling the baskets. And it goes on and on. And understand, this is not a gourmet dinner. This is not steak. They're getting just nourishment, something that they needed to meet their physical needs, what they needed for the moment. Verse 12, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. The word filled here means no more room. Stuffed. We've had a big meal. This is like Thanksgiving dinner. Ample supply. The basket word that's used there is the word kofonos. If you've read the Bible at all in the New Testament, you understand that Paul was let down over a wall at one time to escape a city when he was being held as a prisoner. The basket that he was lowered down in was called a kofonos. It's a big basket. This is the basket they used to carry a large bundle in. So this kofonos is picking up, 12 of them are picking up everything that's left over. How astonishing for this crowd. They're sitting on a grassy hillside in the evening, water lapping up on the Sea of Galilee. They're stuffed and they realize, we've just seen God, the Creator, put on apron strings and cook a meal for us. No wonder they're so shocked because they're just stuffed and it's an amazing display of your God's abundant grace. He is never stingy. He never holds back. He's constantly generous with us. And the leftovers far exceed the five original barley loaves. Let's not tune this out, folks. I know many of you have heard this story a long time. You've read it since you were children. But this is profound what you see your God doing here because Philip had just said, if we had eight months' wages, we could only buy them a little taste. And yet we find 12 baskets left over. No wonder they make the statement that they make in verse 14. Verse 14 says this, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which He had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, I would circle the word the prophet and write next to it Deuteronomy 18. Because in Deuteronomy 18, way back in the Old Testament, Moses said, one day there is someone coming, the prophet, who will do greater works than me, who will speak for God. Listen to him. That's who Moses was speaking of. So they understood this title, the prophet, was attached to the one called the Messiah. So they've got a motive here now because they understand that he's a miracle worker. He's got to be the prophet. He must be the one who's going to lead us in a political upheaval against Rome. That's what it says in verse 15. As you see in just a minute, they want to make him king. John MacArthur wrote a little paragraph about this. I want you to see his quote on the screen. The crowd statement made immediately after Jesus had healed their sick and filled their stomachs revealed what the people were really looking for in a Messiah. They wanted an earthly deliverer, one who would meet all their physical needs and food and health were at the top of the list. 
as well as freeing them from the yoke of Roman oppression. So that's why you read in verse 15, when Jesus understood they wanted to make him king, look what he did. Verse 15, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Give us a king! That's what their ancestors had said when Saul was made king. They wanted a king to rule over them. They wanted to overthrow Rome. And they've got these nationalistic feelings because it's Passover. They're feeling like a nation who's unified. And now they've got a guy who can not only provide their food, but if they go into battle and they get injured in war, he can heal them. So they've got a political leader. They've got a food provider. They've got a physical healer. No wonder they want to make him king. But Jesus is not going to be manipulated by man. He's not going to lead a revolt. He's not part of a political movement. I understand with Jesus as their provider, they've got needs just like you and I would have needs. We'd want to be around Him all the time. He's taken all the work out of their life. He can heal them of every single illness. They could march to Jerusalem with Jesus on their shoulders and overthrow Rome and kick them out of the country. But Jesus wants nothing to do with that. He will be the king to rule the world when he returns, but not this time. This is when he comes in humility. And it's an amazing indicator of the humility of Christ in the midst of the setting. Because you and I, I know what I'd be doing if I had these superpowers. I'd be turning it into merchandising and marketing. That's what most people would think of. How do I amplify this to make myself great? But that's not what you find Jesus doing. In the midst of his humility, he leaves and goes back up onto a mountainside so that they will not force him to be king. He's not going to lead a revolt. So it's a huge contrast between what they want and what Jesus is going to do. You're going to see in a couple of weeks, this is where we're going to end today, you're going to see in a couple of weeks that this huge crowd that gathered around him are going to completely reject him. By the time we get to the end of chapter 6, they want nothing to do with him. Why? Because of the things he says, like what he said to Philip, the way that he tested people, the parazzo was so difficult that the majority of the crowd could not handle the things he was saying, and they left, leaving only the very faithful to follow him. So let's do a quick review of what we've heard this morning. What are the three brush strokes that your God is aware of you and sees your needs? He is intimately concerned with your needs. Very aware. And God will allow you to be tested for the purpose, though, of refining your faith, growing closer to Him, growing stronger. So you'll come to that point where when you're in the midst of a crisis and all you've got are five barley loaves and two sardines, you're willing to say, God, this is all I've got. I can't fix it. And you surrender it to Him and allow Him to do what He does. That's what He was looking for from His followers. Let's pray and ask God to seal these things in our heart. Father, I thank you for the truth that was shared this morning, both through communion and through the songs we did in worship this morning. 
But I also, Father, thank You for what You revealed in Your Word through the working of Your Holy Spirit. Your truth has been taught and has been received. And God, now we just leave it in Your hands to allow Your Holy Spirit to do its work. Some of us this week, Father, will encounter trials we never anticipated. Some of us have encountered trials this last week we never saw coming. But in the midst of it, You've been faithful. You're always there. Just cause us, Father, to be in a position where we're willing to lean towards You as opposed to being away from You. Father, allow us to turn to You and trust You with boldness so that we may speak of You proudly and bring glory to Your name. God, I ask for that for each person, whether they're in this auditorium or they're listening on the recordings, that You would make us as a church bold for You. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I've enjoyed being with you. Have a great week.